Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Alright, hello everyone, and we are back. I am very happy and lucky to have Susie Strife on the show. Susie, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I'm excited. Very good. So I just love to get the show started by getting a little background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Sure. Well, I'm the director of the Office of Sustainability, Climate Action and Resilience um, in Boulder County. So it's a dream job. And I think when I was reflecting on this earlier this week about how did I end up here? Um, Really, for me, it's all about how my childhood shaped my interest in, in environmental protection. And I think you know, research has now shown that early experiences in nature do lead to lifelong environmental concern. And I was so lucky to grow up in a family, even if it was Cincinnati, Ohio, you know, very suburban neighborhood, but I played so much in the backwoods and my parents were nature lovers. And I just had a deep bond with nature early in life. And I really do believe that that's led me on my career path. And so I ended up at Middlebury College, which is very well known for environmental conservation and sustainability. And I was blown away to enter, you know, college where this, these subjects, environmental protection and conservation biology, where world-class professors were teaching these things. And I was in the green mountains skiing and mountain biking and playing in the woods while learning from the best of the best and had just such a privileged opportunity to to hone in on what I really wanted to do. And I think at that point, sustainability as a term and as a field didn't really exist. That was, it was just on the cusp of burgeoning. And so we just used environmental conservation or conservation biology as sort of the entry point or environmental studies, if you will, um, as the entry point to sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was always the kid who was like, you know, if, if I was on an airplane, I'd ask like the pilot, why don't you recycle? What's up with Delta? And then I'd write a, <laughs> I'd write a letter to- At what age? To, oh, I was like eight or nine. You know, I just noticed these things and observed like as a kid, it doesn't make sense. Um, even my daughter now, when, you know, we do drop off or something at school and she, she looks around and she's like, well, it doesn't make any sense why these cars are idling or why um, we're still driving gas powered cars. Like it doesn't, as a child, it's so objective. It's like, why are we doing this? So I was always that kid who was just really, you know, very, um, emotionally in tune with, with like the natural world and, and why are we doing these things that, that, that actually hurt it. And so I was very, um, yeah, I was very interested in learning about sort of the environmental psychology and sociology when I entered college. Um, and then that led me to a career in teaching and environmental science uh, out in Colorado and stint in Costa Rica. And then finally, um, I really honed in, like, I really want to understand why certain people are interested in, in, you know, conservation and sustainability and environmental protection and why culturally or psychologically people are not. And so I applied for the PhD program in, um, at CU. And got in and um, have been focused ever since on on answering that question. (laughs) Very interesting. Do you think it's these values that particularly drew you to the University of Colorado or was it it the nature? What was it? Well, I got a really big grant to come to Colorado. I I was looking for help with, um, you know, I didn't want to be in student debt. And so the National Science Foundation was funding 
students who are really interested in taking their knowledge from what they were learning in their PhD or in their master's programs and putting it into the like sixth grade classrooms. So I got such a beautiful opportunity to take what I was learning in real time in terms of sustainability and environmental studies and bring that to a wonderful sixth grade class um, mm -hmm. once or twice a week. And that just sealed the deal for me to stay in Colorado um, for my PhD. So I was really lucky. Yeah, aren't we all just to be alive? But <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm curious, how can one define what it would mean to live sustainably? And I've also been looking into this, this um, regenerative agriculture in the way of kind of trying to heal the planet, because we've already, as you mentioned, this, you mentioned idling, and you mentioned recycling, which is involved with idling would be using energy uh, for no reason. But I, I am intrigued about you know, because wording so important, trying to get the message out, we want to have a coherent message. And we're all trying to understand these issues. What does it mean to you personally to live a sustainable life? Yeah, such a good question, especially adding regener regenerative in there too. So sustainability really means meeting our own needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So in other words, it's really and, and Boulder County residents, by the way, so over 70% of them can define it and define it that way in a similar fashion. If you, we did a statistically significant survey and they all define it similarly, living light on, you know, living light on the earth, not taking more than what you need um, and not compromising the ability of future generations to, to have what they need. Now, regeneration, which is a new term and an exciting term, in my opinion, and it takes sustainability Definitely. a step further, which really is seeking to maintain I mean, sorry, sustainability is maintaining our systems mm -hmm. um, without degrading them, but regeneration is really practicing the restoration um, and regeneration of our systems. And so it's often used in regenerative agriculture because there are certain amazing practices, by the way, that a lot of our Boulder County farmers are already doing um, that restore the health of our soils. And in restoring the health of our soils, so many other co-benefits come with that. Um, for example, increase water retention in our soils, um, increase um, microbiome of the soils, um, carbon sequestration. So, re, you know, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. So there's so, and then higher nutrient dense foods. So there's so much in, in the sort of regenerative space that's coming to life. And it's funny because that's a practice um, that's ancient. And so we've gotten yeah. so far, you know, by applying synthetic fertilizers or, you know, those pesticides, et cetera, we've gotten so far from practices that were once, you know, very well known and, and just done um, logically uh, to preserve, you know, our soil health. Um, and now we're just trying to incentivize getting back to that and um, replacing those synthetics with just natural practices. Fair enough. So this might be a bit of a heavy question, but I'm curious, how do you think we ended up at this state where it seems like you and I are maybe uh, this regenerative community or people wanting to live sustainably are kind of starting to get more and more prominence in the media and culture. How do you think we ended up at this point where you're like the weird eight-year-old on the plane saying, why do you guys do this? But like everyone just does it just like, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, our disconnect as a society from the natural yeah. world. Um, and it's such a theme in, in my study. I, I actually wrote my dissertation on that, that very thing. Like the nature deficit, nature deficit disorder. It's a real thing. It's, it, we're growing up in a world that um, values convenience, 
you know, and indoor activities. Children right now are on electronic media around 46 to 50 hours a week. I mean, that's a full-time job comparatively to a generation ago where unstructured nature play, go in the backyard, figure it out, go on your bike, go down to the Creek. Um, And it's not that you need major preserved spaces to connect with Mm -hmm. nature. You just need a ditch. Your kid, you're going to look for a bug, you're going to look under a rock. (laughs) And it's building that emotional bond at an early age. And I think when we've gotten away from that, um, it's really damaged us because we are part of nature. And I think it's harder to protect something that you don't love. And it's harder to protect something that you don't have a relationship with. Now, I will say, you know, the next generation, the Sunrise Movement, they're amazing. They are a group of people and they may have strong connections or not, but they care about the way the world is <laughs> headed. And they are being very loud as a movement to say, this is not okay. It's a basic- it's our world too. Right. Yeah, it's a basic, you know, sustainability should be a basic human right. I mean, a clean environment should be uh, clean water, clean air, all those things should be in our constitution as a basic, you know, health, you know, human right. So I think it's powerful that it's churning. um, But it's unfortunately, a majority of our society is urban based, and we live in a world that's disconnected. I love sort of the pilot programs and all of the Um, work being done in urban centers to make that connection deeper, whether it's through rooftop gardens or environmental Mm -hmm. education programs. I mean, it doesn't take much for us to rebuild that connection, which is so cool. Um, It's just- I think we just have to to show a focus on it and kind of convince people that it is good good for everyone to have this this reconnect. I'm curious how you got from your your PhD to being the director of sustainability and climate action (laughs) resilience in Boulder. Well, um, when I was finishing my doctorate, I was looking, I, so I was a, I'm a yes person. I love saying yes to really anything that comes my way. That seems like a really good opportunity. And I was working multiple jobs during graduate school and an internship opportunity came up in the Boulder County commissioner's office, working directly for the commissioners as a sustainability intern. And I was up at CU. It was just interesting timing because I was finishing my doctorate. And, um, you know, I was like, oh, am I going to take an internship after, after getting this fancy degree? But I actually was really like motivated and humbled by what local governments are able to do, especially with progressive leadership. So I jumped in to um, an internship as the first sustainability sort of person at, at Boulder County and amazing had such an awesome time learning from the the great Will Tor, who's been mayor of city of Boulder and then county commissioner. And now he's, um, you know, the director of the Colorado energy office. I mean, I just had mentors who were just shaping my entire entrance point. And that's how I work. I, even though I love academia, I actually learned through experience. So they just threw me in the fire and I was running all sorts of programs at Boulder County without, you know, knowing really what I was doing. Any particularly memorable experiences? um, So yeah, I mean, I we ran the first um, financing clean energy financing program for residential um, clean energy in the in the entire nation, and that was amazing. And we got People of the Year award in two thousand and nine. That was Commissioner Tor and I and Ann Livingston, who was the first sustainability coordinator. Um, So it was just a beautiful time of learning and also just like understanding that I might not be going down the academic path that 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 local government and and action on the local scale 
actually can matter. And I was really enthused by the practicality and, and the implementation piece of local government. I was like, wow, we're actually doing stuff. We're creating policy, we're creating services. And so it hasn't stopped since that point. And that was 13 years ago. Wow. And just, you know, we just formed a department last year, which is Office of Sustainability, Climate Action and Resilience. Oh, and I see. We have 25 people who are working for, for the Office of Sustainability. And it's just been incredible ever since. But that it doesn't sound- mean that it's daunting. <laughs> There's a lot to do. Um, as, as is in life always. But you have yeah. a focus on three specific topics, if I'm not mistaken, which is clean energy, finance, and climate action. Can you talk about why you guys chose those in particular? So the, the Office of Sustainability actually has way more than that. We have zero okay. waste, regenerative ag, um, transporta- transportation electrification. We have all sorts of great stuff. Um, those are just three areas that I have expertise in. Okay. So we have subject matter expertise in all the other areas, like air quality, for example. Boulder County's air quality, we, we received an F. <laughs> you know, it's terrible. Um, yeah. So we have air quality specialists looking at the intersection between climate and air quality and public health. Um, We have folks who are looking at transportation emissions and how do we electrify, you know, our own internal fleet as well as our transportation resources. So there's, it's, it's way bigger than I think probably um, is online (laughs) at this point, but those are my, my particular expertise areas. Fair enough. I'm, I'm curious what your personal opinions are through all these sounds like almost two decades of experience studying climate action and environmentalism in general. What's your opinion on how to most effectively combat this challenge? And that's kind of the, the main goal of this show is for me to kind of figure out how I can craft a plan to have the most impact in an effective way. That's such an important question and, and one that our team talks about constantly. I'm sure. At, 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 at one point, it was individual action. All mm-hmm. local governments were trying to, you know, inspire and motivate and incentivize the individual to behave in a way that, you know, helped with climate protection. Tough job. At, at this point, it's really about collective action and regional change, game-changing innovation, technology, um, you know, to ensure a low-carbon future. So it, it's not that that local action, that individual action, doesn't matter. It does but it has to be a collective movement. So ambitious climate action will only happen if the public is organized to demand it. And so that collective action can roll up into something much greater. Um, I have a really interesting example. One one man just last week sent me an email through a public forum that said, look, I've done everything to my home, to my car. I have solar, I have, um, you know, thermal heat pump, I have it all. And I still, and not, you know, that what, what is this doing? What what am I actually, what are the changes on a greenhouse gas emission reduction scale? Huh. Um, and he's right, uh, like he is doing everything correct and so should a bunch of other people. But he was also pointing out the cost, you'd spent $90,000 on all these upgrades. And so it has to be a societal shift. It has to be, um, you know, local and national governments, state governments setting the stage for um, making these technologies affordable and having access to, for these um, game-changing solutions for everyone. Because if it, it's one thing to ask early adopters to do it, who have the resources, but it's a whole nother thing for an entire society to move in that direction. And we have to make the right choice, the, the only choice, right? That there yeah. is no choice to buy a gas, you know, combustion vehicle anymore. 
that the only choice is electric um, and that there's affordable options. So everyone there's access for all and that the secondary market, for example, of electric vehicles is more accessible and affordable. Um, so those types of things I think would really help move the needle in terms of pushing climate um, action forward. Fair enough. What do you think about the interactions between corporations and, and governments? Because it sounds like you're talking about the government's kind of changing the laws and incentivizing corporations mm -hmm. and individuals to do stuff like that. I'm just yeah. trying to find a way to, to get the, you know, the grassroots. I always talk about this, the grassroots, the corporations and the governments. We all need to work in, in unison. And I'm trying to figure out how we can do that. Well, it's what's so amazing about the private sector. And by the way, every success we've had, major success in terms of high impact, in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions reductions have been public-private partnerships. So like Very cool. we really do work with the private sector all the time because they can set the stage um, in such an incredible way. For example, if Amazon makes one decision to eliminate, you know, for example, plastic packaging, in, in anything that they offer, that would be game changing because on the consumer side, you're just you're just trying to consume and, and make, you know, make do and, and get through the day with your family. You've got it has to be producer responsibility. And in order to do that, you need incentives to make it happen, to make it cost competitive to what's already mm. occurring, um, which is also highly subsidized. The fossil fuel industry and plastics are highly subsidized. Right. So you have to figure out a way to get corporations to say yes, and they're ready. I mean, they the private sector is is has put out a lot of amazing commitments, and they're the ones who are doing you know 300 to 500 megawatts of solar to offset their own energy use. They they are actually game changing institutions, um, and and the private sector is really making it happen. And I think local governments and national governments and state that's why communities for climate action is so important. Setting you know, making sure that we're setting the standard and the expectation vis-a-vis -vis regulation um, and policy so that there's market signals. There's just that there's there's market signals and there's policy to ensure that those changes happen. Are you aware of any other- Sorry, oh, I get yeah, excited. No. And then it's normalized, Please do. Right? Yeah, and, and, and so yeah, bad behavior is is not acceptable and it's normalized to do the right thing. It's normal to be sustainable. It's not special or outside of the- cultural norm, right? Like, I, I don't know. I just think like the, all the labels that we have, organic, B Corp, like a non-GMO, that's awesome. But that's really saying, oh, we have to go outside the norm hmm. to to do all of this stuff. And, and it's more expensive and the consumer has to pay for it. It has to be completely just the right normal choice to, you know, to have whatever consumption product at the end of the day that is that is more sustainable, that is regenerative, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's very challenging to to create a new norm. I don't think it's challenging to create a new norm. I think it's challenging to do it in the in the time that we need. Cause the way I see it as a young person, we're already way, way past the the time where we should have gotten started with heavy action. So now every single day that goes by, we need to do more and more. Are you are you aware of any other counties with with roles like such as yours, either in Colorado or outside? Oh yeah. It's amazing. The entire industry of sustainability directors or coordinators or chief sustainability officers, a lot of folks are calling them now, is exp has exploded. My barometer of success of how 
um, wide the, the, this position has become is my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, which is pretty conservative and not necessarily known for environmental conservation. And you know they have had a, an energy manager and now a chief sustainability officer. So it is happening, it's flourishing across major cities and local governments have been playing in the last four years, at least the role if, yeah, I mean, they're the ones on the stage of, of showcasing what's possible in terms of piloting different projects and programs and services and policies to be able to showcase the success of those and then for those to be replicated at, at scale. So that's why these, these positions at the local government exist, not only for localized climate action and local policies, but also to showcase this is possible and that our community demands this and this is what you know we can do nationally if we want the new norm the, the better yes norm. the new norm i like it so as as i'm aware you do do you do some teaching at the university as well yeah i've been teaching for the last decade um in all sorts of different departments up there started in the environmental studies department then moved over to this amazing graduate program called the masters of the environment program <laughs> m-e-n-v program and I teach sustainability and practice. So basically I come in and teach the students what I've been doing on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's um, you know, looking at regenerative agricultural practices, for example, or funding an innovation fund for you know, low carbon technology or carbon capture. And we go through what role does local government play in um, fostering sustainable behavior and you know, ensuring that our communities are protected and so it's been a blast. The, the graduate students are by far my favorite group to work with, although I really do still love the undergrad. And I love mentoring because I had such amazing mentors. I mean, some of the best. <laughs> and I just feel like it's a recycled energy. Like they provide me with questions that I have Absolutely. yet to answer. It's awesome. Just like this podcast, like I'm inspired by the questions and then I get re-motivated and re-energized by their, their interest and commitment in, in this field. Um, so it's been amazing. And I have all sorts of mentees all over the state. And um, it's just been an honor really to, to be in that position, to be able to share knowledge and also just to, again, to be re-inspired in what I do. Absolutely. I think, I think energy always goes both ways, especially in a positive sense. I'm curious what advice you have for an upcoming generation who might not have had the honor of taking a class with you, but who wants to get involved <laughs> in these issues and you know, making a better future for everyone. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, what I tell my students is find, if you're passionate about a certain area of sustainability, let's say it's transportation or local food and ag, um, zero waste, find the person that's doing that in your community and say, what can I do to help? Mm. That Nine times out of 10, if you're there with a bright mind and energizing, um, you know, philosophy, like you are going to get a job or an internship or learn. And, and regardless of whether you're paid or not, it's an experience of a lifetime to understand what the local community is doing. And there's so much going on here, especially in Boulder, Colorado. I mean, we are the hotbed of sustainability and clean tech. Um, and you know, yeah. So, I mean, I always say that there's a person out there who wants to nurture your interest and so just go and find them and continue to email and get a quick, you know, coffee chat or online chat and tell them that you want to be involved. And, and there's no way that you can say no to free, to, you know, a free, um, yeah. wonderful young person to want to invest their time and their energy. 
So it's, it's pretty awesome that a lot of the students have done that and they're really working towards building their career off of something that's tangible in the community. Yeah, um, I think that's that's really awesome. And then the more and more I learn about it, the more and more it seems the answers doesn't lie in laws or legislation, but it's really, we are the government, we are the people, we are the solution. And every time you talk to someone, you make a connection and we get more educated on these issues and how to create a better society. I think it's, you, you can never take a step in the wrong direction reaching out to someone. Um, I'm just curious if you could tell me a little bit about communities for climate action before yeah. we kind of sign off. Sure. I'm, I'm glad you asked because it's truly one of the most powerful, I think, impactful um, organizations in the state of Colorado. And it's one that we launched um, with in collaboration with our friends at the city of Boulder. So I want to make this a, a, a short story, but I'm just going to go into depth for one minute because it's worth Please it. Do. When local communities are looking at where they are um, in terms of their their progress toward climate action. Oftentimes they do this, this thing called a greenhouse gas emissions inventory. And that's a diagnostic tool that showcases all the different sectors and where the emissions are coming from in your community. And for example, a third of our emissions come from transportation. 65% of our emissions in, in Boulder County come from our commercial and um, residential buildings. And so that's why services start to spawn up to support the reduction of emissions in those sectors, right? We did an inventory in 2005, which is our baseline. And then we've done inventories ever since for in, in five year increments. And unfortunately, what we see is very minimal despite a lot of investment, despite a lot of services and programs, you actually see very little dips in emissions um, locally. And huh. you ask yourself, well, why, why is that? And oh, and here's a big dip in transportation and that's directly related to a, a national federal policy. Um, and we saw some dips in emissions and they were directly related to national and statewide policies. For example, the renewable portfolio standard impacted our emissions on the energy side um, because that is a policy that requires um, utilities for a certain percentage of their electricity to come from solar. So you start to see the writing on the wall, how important policy is. Yeah. So policy actually impacts the stuff and not necessarily local action. You can't necessarily see it in those diagnostic tools. And so the city of Boulder and Boulder County launched this idea of let's create um, a local government-based uh, collaborative and we'll see who we can get involved in this statewide organization that is committed to policy change. And we went and shopped it around for years. This was in 2016 and we got Fort Collins to sign on and then we got Aspen to sign on. And so the usual suspects were like, yeah, this makes sense. And yeah. so what's so neat about the organization itself is it's really a unique coalition in the fact that it's local governments um, coming together to get a one to one voice around climate action. And we use that those membership dues to pay for lobbyists at the state capitol. Okay. And those lobbyists take our um, our legislative agenda and fight mm -hmm. on behalf of, of all these communities. And 35 local communities across the state of Colorado are now invested in this. And that's one out of every seven Coloradoans. So it's really inspiring wow. state and federal policy through a, a you know sort of um, you know, a collective effort. 
that's, that's the best I can describe it. I get really excited about it. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And you're, I have to, you're extremely inspiring and everything you've said today on the podcast is, is really awesome. Um, so you mentioned this person who spent, you know, close to a hundred thousand dollars trying to make sure that their personal impact is, is helping the world as much as possible. You've spent your entire career basically focusing on these issues. Sounds like the three of us are pretty similar. We have this, this big picture mindset. I'm curious, how do you think we can effectively get the community like Boulder to realize that these changes that we make can actually change the entire globe if we set a good enough example and create this new norm of a regenerative society or we heal the world. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. No, I do. I mean, I think our, our residents are ready. I mean, they have been ready and, and they're becoming more and more aware. You cannot deny the climate impacts that are happening in our community. Record setting wildfires just occurred, right? Um, mm -hmm. We had sweltering high heat this past summer. And it's hard to remember in the middle of winter, but it was record setting high heat. Um, and then you, you have a, a ton of other local impacts, whether it's um, drought or you know decreased water supply. And I think people are really starting to understand that there's connections to all of that and they want, they want to play a role. And the best thing that they can do is get involved at the local level on all those pieces that we talked about in terms of you know, getting engaged in energy smart and the services that provide for residents or partners for a clean environment on the business side, but then also demanding it through our legislators and mm -hmm. demanding it through these organizations like Communities for Climate Action. It, it's not enough. Our, our policies need to go farther in protecting and stabilizing our climate. And so I think there's, again, that collective action effort. Um, one of our favorite programs are really like neighborhood scale too, so if, if, for example, you can do a bulk purchase for solar in your neighborhood and get all your neighbors to commit to it, then that reduces the price point of the solar and helps, you know, get more solar on in, 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 at a larger scale. Those are the types of things that I think can really kind of be the game changers to lift um, us out of this mess that we're in, in terms of climate, the climate crisis. But there's so, there's so much more in terms of the a movement. It's a people's movement at this point. And, the, and like I was mentioning earlier, the sunrise movement itself, as the youth generation kind of pushes forward, they are mm -hmm. going to be louder and louder in demanding that, you know, local governments and state oh, governments, yes, we will. national governments are protecting the people with aggressive policies that do not allow for environmental degradation, right? It's a, yeah. it's a different, I, I just hope that when my children are, you know, 30 years old, that this, that they are living in a carbon free world. Like that would be amazing. Yeah. And we're going to get it done, Susie. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> I'm going to, your children, we can work together. We're going to get it done. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And thank you so much for all the work you've been doing for so long. Aww. We need more and more people like you out there. I'm going to keep finding them and keep connecting with them and putting us all together so we can get this massive action that we're looking for. Susie, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks for coming you on the show. You too, Ethan. Thank you so much for hosting. And I really appreciated the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, everyone. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.